Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this nation is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on once again, Rich. It is a beautiful, blustery Wednesday afternoon and I'm ready to run some of the news down. (laughs) Well, let's get it started uh, first off with a little segment we like to call News or Not. This is when we have maybe a little too many stories to talk about at length, but we definitely want to cover in some detail. So I'm going to ask Tom if these are news or not, give him a one-sentence chance to kind of give his take in on this. Uh, first up here, we have a new startup called Nuvio that we just found uh, some new information about. They raised a $53 million funding round led by Dell Technologies, you may have heard of them, and disclosed the company's founders for the first time. The company was founded by Gerard Williams III, who recently left Apple after nine years as chief architect for CPUs and SOCs, Manu Gulati, a former Alphabet employee who also worked eight years at Apple working on mobile systems on a chip, uh, SOCs also, I don't know why I read it differently both times, and John Bruno, who worked with Apple's platform architecture group as well as being a a short-time Alphabet employee. Nuvia plans to develop data center chips that are faster, more power efficient, and more secure than current x86 offerings uh, built on ARM, I would presume, although we don't know 100% there. Um, And they're saying this area is ripe for innovation and advancement. Apple has led the way with high-performance mobile arm for a while. So news or not that that kind of brain trust is kind of working on some data center products now? Nah, I I don't know what the purpose of this is. You you are literally fighting the 1,600-pound gorilla in Intel. And I know that Intel's not on great footing right now, but they can still stomp you uh, until you give me a solution for this. That isn't AI or ML or another buzzword. I don't see why you're doing this. All right. Well, I do have that other buzzword for you because next up, NVIDIA released a new reference platform to allow people to quickly build GPU accelerated ARM based servers. Tom, it's a theme with news or not today. This opens up the CUDA X ecosystem to a whole host of new companies. Can AI be the killer workload that moves some organizations into ARM here, Tom? You combine that high power GPU with enough low power, uh, with good enough low power ARM. News or not here, Tom? I think this is probably a little closer to news just because it's actually making it easier to develop AI stuff. And and I think all the way back to the 90s with hackers, you know, risk architecture is going to change everything. (laughs) Well, Johnny Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie, you were absolutely right, except risk architecture is now a whole bunch of ARM cores running parallel workloads as opposed to one slightly larger, not Intel chip. (laughs) Uh, Well, Here's an interesting uh, uh, thought on that, Tom, and it's a new update from Cerebras Systems. After announcing their wafer scale uh, engine earlier this year, which we covered actually on the Gestalt IT rundown, Cerebras Systems announced the CS1 system at the Supercomputing Conference 2019. The system contains the world's largest chip. So it's kind of the opposite of Arma instead of a bunch of tiny little low-power chips. This one contains 400,000 cores, (laughs) 1.2 trillion transistors, uh, takes up 46,225 square millimeters of silicon, and has 18 gigabytes of on-chip memory. The system uses 20 kilowatts of power, but offers 9 petabytes per second of memory bandwidth. That may sound like a lot, but when you're looking at competitors like Google's TensorPower processing units, the CS1 draws about one-fifth the power, is about one-thirtieth the size, and with three times the performance when you're looking at AI workloads. 
Uh, and for that power, about four <laughs> kilowatts are dedicated just to cooling it, which is insane. The system is meant to be used for an AI-specific processing component of a larger supercomputer, and it's fitted with 12 100 gigabit uh, Ethernet connections for getting data to and from the system. I would hope 12 would be enough. Uh, the Argoni National Laboratory is already using the system, so this isn't just theoretical. You know, they at least have some sort of win out there in the supercomputing space. Uh, news or not here, Tom, big chips, big news? Yeah, I really don't have an opinion on this one or the other, but I really feel like that if if this is the anti-ARM, then they need to rename it to the Large Execution Group Processor or the <laughs> Leg Processor. Uh, sorry, that that's a horrible pun. That one's for you, Amy Arnold. Uh, no, I, okay, you made a big chip. Congratulations. Nobody cares. What are you going to do with it? Um, this is the thing. Hardware for the sake of hardware doesn't do any good. You have to have a workload to go with it or it's useless. Anybody that used a cell processor knows, and I can tell you that unless you were using a PS4 or an Xbox, you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, it's interesting, one, that they, you know, it's one thing to put out a spec or something like that and say, hey, we're developing this, which is, I think, what our discussion was about uh, when they initially announced that wafer scale engine. At least seeing it in use with, you know, um, you know, the Argonian National Laboratory is using that for weather modeling and all sorts of stuff. So I can and I like the idea that this is specific enough. That's like, hey, this is going to be a replacement for going to the cloud for these, uh, you know, tensor processing units um, or maybe having a, you know, a 16 rack uh, high of NVIDIA Volta cards or something like that. This can replace that again for specific workloads um, and be a lot more compact package, even though on the face of it, it seems absurd by most other dimensions. When you put it into context, um, I do think it's a little interesting. We'll see if they get more than just a a handful of customers, though. I, I am curious about that. And finally, here on News or Not, Microsoft announced its Team Communications app, you may have heard of it, now has over 20 million daily active users. They introduced Teams back in 2016. Back in July, Microsoft said Teams had more than 13 million daily active users. By October, uh, Slack had said that their app, their main competitor, I would imagine, has 12 million daily active users. Uh, teams seem to be pulling a little bit far ahead and considering that most of those are paying in some way for Teams, even if they're not paying specifically for Teams functionality. Uh, also in October, C Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella said that more than 350 organizations with at least 10,000 people were using Teams. Microsoft knows how to make productivity apps. News or not here, Tom? Oh, no, not really news. Um, <laughs> the key was in your statement paying in some way. Yeah. And that's the big kicker. Uh, when Teams is included as part of every installation of Office or uh, Enterprise License Agreement, it's a sunk cost at that point. So of course, people are going to use it. If I'm already paying for Teams, why would I want to use Slack? Um, realistically speaking, I don't necessarily know that Teams is really going to you know, throw the balance off one way or the other. Uh, I'll be curious to see if people are still on teams in two or three years or if there's going to be some kind of rapid consolidation in the market yeah and i do think it's kind of funny now that the antitrust uh, or regulation is or the scrut antitrust scrutiny is off of microsoft guess what microsoft does really well build bundles that get people to use their products hmm uh, next up here for discussion, our kind of our first discussion story. This was the story that broke kind of as we were recording last week. So sorry we didn't get to that. But last week, Morantis announced it had acquired Docker Enterprise. Not Docker, just Docker Enterprise. So what does that include? Well, that includes the business, including contracts and strategic partnerships, the team behind Docker Enterprise, which is, you know, most of the employees, the brand, 
and the IP, including Docker Enterprise Engine, Docker Trusted Registry, Docker Unified Control Plane, and Docker CLI. The completely not desiccated corpse of Docker will continue on as its own business, working on tools that, quote, advance developer workflows. Interesting, no containers there. Both Mirantis and Docker both stated they will continue to contribute to Docker's open source projects, so that's good also. Uh, also, because it's Silicon Valley, Docker also raised, as they were announcing this sale, a $35 million funding round. Sure, why not? I guess they need to keep the lights on. Is Docker Enterprise selling to a Kubernetes as a service provider about an ironic and end imaginable, Tom? Yeah, it pretty much is. This is basically Docker has become my poster child for what happens when the entire industry zigs and you decide to zag. And then you look around and go, what the hell happened? Where did everybody go? Um, this literally is the worst possible end for the darling of Silicon Valley, even what, just two or three years ago? Yeah. Like Docker, Docker, Docker was everywhere. And then Kubernetes came out and like it was instant, the shift. And now you what you're, you're, you're out is that Mirantis buys you and cannibalizes what's left for pieces that they can use and as someone on Twitter put it the other day, wow, they elected a person who's really good at sinking ships to sink a ship. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I hope that that's not the case here, but you got to wonder, I mean, with all of these people that are focused on, you know, Azure and AWS and Google Cloud and that thing that Larry Ellison does when he's not building volcano layers, I mean, realistically speaking, what hope is there for Docker at this point, other than just be a footnote in the you know eventual march of computing? Yeah, I mean, unless they had something in Skunk Works or something they were working on, you know, it, clearly the company realized they needed to pivot, and they had kind of worked um, on developing, um, you know, with uh, Microsoft and a couple other uh, major partners working on, you know, kind of moving beyond just like kind of containerization or containers and orchestration layer, and moving on to some larger infrastructure. Uh, components uh please check out our what happened to docker video that we posted on youtube a couple weeks ago it's a little has a little too optimistic of an end i think but it kind of breaks down where i thought the company was heading and so maybe that's something that they can you know they have a they have some money um someone wants to pay them to continue to exist um so maybe they can use that and presumably a bag of cash from Arantis, right it's clearly wasn't enough to pay off all of their investors but it's something um so you know maybe they have enough time maybe they have enough development already sunk into whatever they're going to pivot to but yeah it seems like docker as a as a company uh, I, I i don't know obviously nowhere near the unicorn status probably ever for the company uh watch me eat my words but in terms of enterprise, I mean, the the good news, I guess, for Docker Enterprise is when people were kind of wringing their hands about what the future for Docker was, people were pointing out they do actually have a fairly substantial customer base for that enterprise product. It, again, wasn't enough to justify that unicorn valuation, but for a company like Moran to certainly conserve those customers, obviously, I, I think long term, those are going to be switched over to Kubernetes as a service customers. Um, but uh, I mean, at least tons of people didn't lose their jobs. They took the team. Yay. That's good, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, we already talked about the supercomputing conference, uh, but some other news coming out of there I thought was interesting. Intel announced one API, a new programming model designed to abstract the tight coupling of AI ML frameworks and specific hardware, allowing developers to reuse code on different hardware. It's kind of a big issue now where everything kind of needs to be coded specifically to whatever platform you're running on. 
While this may sound similar to the right once run anywhere promise of Java, Intel's general manager of compute performance, Bill Savage, told Ars Technica that one AI uses a different approach. Instead of using uh, compiled source code into bytecode and then executing it with a virtual machine like Java, uh, one API uses a set of libraries that tie hardware agnostic API calls directly to optimized low-level code that drives the actual local hardware. OneAPI also introduces a new variant to C++, Data Parallel C++, and is basically designed to do the same thing, uh, provide very low-level optimized code to target multiple architectures. Uh, The toolkit's now available for testing. You can check that out. Intel also provided some details about their Z GPUs, XZ. I think that's, I'm going to go with Z as the pronunciation until I hear otherwise, Um, and saying that they're going to be seeing... um, uh, the seven nanometer Z uh, HPC cards going into supercomputers for the uh, Aurora supercomputer in 2021 with consumers cards out by 2020. Not a lot of details on those, but I thought it interesting. Intel definitely becoming, it seemed to be releasing GPUs for once, uh, RIP Larrabee. But Tom, this one API, from what we know about it, does it seem to avoid the pitfalls of Java or is this always going to be a compromise that might not be worth it for a lot of organizations? I think it's always going to be a compromise. I mean, the reason why Java sucked so hard back in the 2000s was because they quite literally wrote it as well as they could, (laughs) given the technology at the time. I mean, it's like complaining that a Model T can't do 238 miles an hour like a Veyron. It's like, well, yeah, when you're just building the stupid thing, of course, it's not going to go very fast, but it went faster than a horse. So here's the deal. Okay, congratulations, Intel. You guys have managed to abstract an API for AI ML write once think anywhere software, I guess. You know what? You still left a lot of room open for people to write source specific uh, instruction sets and increase speed. So yeah, guess what? If you're going to take a 15% performance penalty to run all this stuff through an open API framework, okay, great if you're learning. But when you go do this for real or you're trying to make a competitive advantage, what are you going to do? You're going to rewrite that code so that it runs as fast as possible or fast as artificially intelligent possible on hardware so that you can claim you have the fastest, biggest, best, whatever. Um, I, I like the fact that they're trying to bury a hatchet. I think they just need to be worried about all of the other competitors stabbing him in the back while they're digging the hole for the hatchet. It does kind of beg the question because, I mean, one, as much as everyone complains about Java and justifiably so, it is like the most popular programming language like for for a reason right i mean mean, some of that has to be with the time and place that it debuted and stuff like that and certainly the historical implications of that but i I don't think the idea of that approach is wrongheaded but i think it also signals that intel is maybe banking on the fact that we're reaching the good enough performance point for a lot of these alml workloads that we can say okay we don't need this bare metal performance anymore you know we can we can again introduce this abstraction layer maybe take that performance hit with the benefit being that we can theoretically better uh, uh you know hit a broad range of hardware for our ai ml apps and that kind of stuff i think that's a little bit at odds or or it certainly serves their purposes with their gpus which no one is programming for right at this point other than for general purpose stuff so that certainly is to their benefit to say like hey we have a way for you to port your app that's designed for an nvidia volta card over to the z gpu no problem um, hey, also buy our ZGPU. Ha ha. Uh, we're Intel. We make GPUs now. This is a very weird future we live in. Next up here, mm-hmm. uh, sticking on the yep. Java strain here, Tom. 
The U.S. Supreme Court, you know them, they announced that they would hear an appeal from Google regarding its ongoing lawsuit with Oracle over Java. Um, good times. The lawsuit began in 2010 when Oracle sued Google for using 11,500 lines of code in Android allegedly copied from Java. Google won two lower court rulings, but most recently lost in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit with a speculative fine of up to $9 billion, although uh, that hasn't been quite determined yet. Uh, but the copyright implications, I think, are what most interesting about the Supreme Court hearing this. Google argues that their code is it was used, they took that code essentially arguing it was functional, like replicating a keyboard layout, whereas Oracle uh, claims that the APIs that were in that code are constitute a creative work. And I just see like Larry Ellison like insisting on this at some point uh, in some sort of maniacal Volcano Island boardroom meeting. The Supreme Court is going to debate code, APIs, and Java. What could go wrong here, Tom? A lot of things, considering <laughs> that most of the justices on the Supreme Court of the United States think that code involves semaphore flags because they're <laughs> that old. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't even trust trial court judges to do this because the average age of a judge, well, is about my age. And the difference is, is that I actually have knowledge of Java, although I don't really want to admit it. Um, their idea of Java is what the clerk brings them in between court cases. <laughs> um, the, the, yeah, And I know, right, I can riff on these all day. But realistically, this is the problem. Law has not caught up to the technology. And so, you know, we have this problem with copyright as is on other things. And you're talking about something that's very speculative and the fact that we still allow people to file software patents. I mean, there's only so many ways to wrap an error function in an if statement. So, yeah, everything's going to look derivative after a while, especially if what you're doing is building for speed. So the question then becomes, did Google intentionally copy 11,000 lines of code that they just said, you know what, forget it, we'll take it and put it in there, and if we get caught, oh well. Or was it, we wrote these as best we could, and they just happened to look like the rest of the code? Uh, and this is a huge problem for the open source movement, because what happens when someone donates code or code gets injected into something like Android, and then you know five years later, a cash-strapped evil genius decides, uh, I didn't want that getting out, we have to sue, we have to get the money. So I think that the most amicable solution for this is for Google to give Oracle the $9 billion and Google Cloud Platform and then launch Larry Ellison to Mars, let him rule the planet himself, and we get back to actually writing good software on this planet. Yeah, I mean, the if we're looking at this, I, I do think it becomes extremely problematic if we're going to be talking about APIs as creative works long term and what the implications for that will be. I will say, I mean, Google's good at hiring the lawyers. Um, obviously, they're willing to ride this through the entire way. They have, of course, 9 billion reasons to. But there's also been a number of amicus briefs filed by the likes of Microsoft and other big tech companies basically saying, hey, um, please don't dub that a creative work. That causes all sorts of headaches for us. I imagine that does carry some weight. I'm, I'm just really interested to see how this is framed and how you know, those arguments go. Because you're right. I mean, let's, let's even ignore the age question. Like, if... You, as someone who doesn't have a deep level understanding of Java, like myself, you know, getting into the specifics of the code, I think, is a, is a losing uh, approach to this. It's, it, but I, I'm curious how the attorneys for both sides will frame this discussion and whether it, you know, it gets all folksy uh, and uh, an attorney is going to take out a handkerchief and bat his, you know, brow and stuff like that. 
So I will tell you that I think that the biggest problem that I have with this right now is the definition of what an API actually does. If an API is a creative work designed to do something, then I have a really strong argument that an instruction manual is a creative work that describes the inner workings of a device. And if you can copyright an API, you can copyright an instruction manual. And now we've got problems. One uh, company that doesn't have a problem is CloudSimple, and that's because they've been bought by Google. Uh, CloudSimple specializes letting organizations run VMware workloads in the cloud, uh, something uh, that, as a uh, former GCP partner, uh, they definitely know how to do that for Google. Uh, The company also supports Azure, and it's interesting, they've received venture funding from Microsoft's M12 division, so they're partially owned or or, uh, invested in by Microsoft and now acquired by Google. GCP is now the only major public cloud provider without direct VMware integration. Can this help compensate for that, or is this just a token effort to check some boxes here, Tom? Token effort. Nobody cares about running VMware on GCP. If they did, VMware would have partnered with them, I don't know, six months ago. Um, Realistically speaking, when you look at GCP as the hobby kit cloud where people just build TensorFlow workloads and stuff like that, what possible value does VMware add? Zero. This is this is this is no, this is nothing. This is this is Google trying to to kind of honestly. I think that Cloud Simple is just a kind of a migration tactic to get people to move workloads to GCP and then refactor them so that they're you know tied to GCP. This almost seems to me like they have one big customer for which this is an important use case. Obviously, they've partnered, <laughs> they've partnered with them, and it was just like they just did. They just ran the numbers, and it's like okay, uh, we're going to pay them this much, and we can just buy them for this much. Screw it, let's just do that. Dude, I've heard of million-dollar feature requests inside of software, but this may be the first time that company bought another company because a customer said they wanted to use them. <laughs> I know. I, what I'm saying is, like, they it was already an existing customer, right? And they're just like, ah, just be easier. Just buy them. Just integrate the team. Whatever. Who cares? Um, and finally here, speaking of Google, interesting sure. Chrome news. Google revealed that an experiment rolled out to the stable channel of Chrome was causing some browsers access through virtual machine environments to display white screens and leave the browser unresponsive. Specifically, it seemed to be affecting Citrix environments. I didn't mean to do a fail trombone, but that worked out really, really well. Uh, thank you for my phone for falling on the ground. The experiment silently switched on a flag that enabled a new web content seclusion feature, which suspends Chrome tabs when other apps are moved uh, over top of them to save system resources. And it was causing just some problems with how the machine, um, uh, the virtual machine was rendering that. According to Google engineer David Benevue, the experiment has been rolled out in beta for about five months and previously been rolled out to 1% of stable Chrome browsers without any of these issues. Uh, they just decided, hey, we'll just flip some more flags over and all of a sudden everything was breaking. Google rolled back the experiment on the 14th and plans to work with Citrix on the issue, but should be worrying that uh, Google mad scientists is kind of turning stuff on in stable Chrome here, Tom? Yeah, that's the biggest issue is that, hey, we're just going to muck around with things. I think, although it is kind of hilarious that Google managed to break Chrome by trying to make it use less resources. So, uh, you know, stay tuned for the next version of Chrome. We're using all the RAM in your computer and other computers around you, because why not? (laughs) Um, But this is the problem that you have with things like software versioning. Um, Can you tell me right now what version of Chrome you're using? Sure, I'm using version 128.621.13752ab6. Purple. Yes. Yeah. That 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 but that's just it. Most people anymore don't know what version of software they're using. I'm using Chrome. I mean, most people can't even tell you if they're using stable or beta or SID or whatever they call their let's break all the things channel, 
But that's the thing. Like I use Chrome beta and it's relatively stable, but I still have moments when Chrome acts weird or does stuff. You don't push this stuff live. This is uh, okay. Uh, so if you're a DevOps fan, I want you to plug your ears right now. <laughs> okay. Now that they're all gone, this is the problem with CI CD pipelines. You don't just roll random crap into stable every three months because you have to a uh, target to hit. You know, it used to be, oh my God, we got to cram all this stuff in before we hit the ship date. Otherwise we have to release a day one patch. And now it's like, hey, we got to roll some some changes in here. Otherwise we, we don't have anything to publish and we're not going to hit our targets. No, you ship software when it's done. You don't ship software because you got to ship something. This also seems like, you know, for, for a company that lauds its ability to do complex machine learning and, you know, uh, alg al put algorithms on everything, right? It seems to me that that 1% rollout, they should have done, I don't know, maybe like a more representative rollout to like find some way. I know I know they don't want to say, hey, we're tracking all our users. We know <laughs> we know a ton of information about people that use individual Chrome builds and stuff like that. But you would think there would be a way to more represent to be do roll that up more representationally so that it would hit a very small number of people that are using it in Citrix or some other uh, VM environment and discover one person breaking that browser, not you know, hundreds or thousands or something like that. I don't know. Well, but the problem is on the flip side, I you couldn't have tracked this if it was 10 or a hundred or even a thousand people. You, you've got to break this stuff big time because otherwise people are just going to be like, oh yeah, Chrome's acting funny today. I don't really care. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, it's like when Firefox rolled out DNS over HTTPS, it's like, oh my God, look at all the stuff this broke. How did they not catch this in testing? I'm like, I've tested software before. I've tested major releases of things before. You know what? Nobody cares. They download the release because they want to see what cool new bits got changed. Because guess what? There are no release notes anymore. So they just said, you know what? I'm going to use this. And if things break, I'll just delete it and move on to the next thing. And nobody cares anymore. It's not until you push things out to people who use software every day that you find all the stuff you broke because... People like me don't use software like normal people. Tom, there are release notes. They're just all bug fixes and improvements. Uh, uh, kind of a, a you lie in order to in order to provide the most common greatest user experience. Please make sure <laughs> automatic updates are turned on for your software. And the fact that you don't know which apps release notes I'm quoting tells you the problem. Well, one thing that's never a problem, Tom, is your smiling face in the Gestalt IT Rundown. Thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? Well, I'm probably going to rant a little bit more about the subject over at gestaltit.com <laughs> in the middle of all the great event coverage that I've been uh, coming up with. You know, it's funny that we we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, things like AI and ML and stuff like that. And then I go out and I actually talk to companies who are implementing all this stuff in real life, uh, companies like Mist Systems, now part of Juniper. Um, I, I have some stuff up on my own blog at networkingnerd.net about some of the cool stuff that they're doing with AI. Um, and I'll give you a hint, it doesn't involve anything about chips. So make sure you go check that out over there. Yeah, absolutely. Mist Systems is one of uh, like my favorite companies to kind of keep up on just because it's kind of mad science for another part of Juniper. It's like, a, it's. I'm very interested to see like how those two will kind of uh, interplay with each other. Uh, very cool stuff, Tom. Can't wait to see more. Uh, you can also find my stuff on gestaltit.com. Like I said, we have some videos. Check out our uh, What Happened to Docker video. Uh, we have a post up on that and mm -hmm. on our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the channel where we have stuff up all the time as well. We just had a new podcast out about if simplification always means you're adding risk uh, as well. So check that out as well. And we have new podcasts up every other Tuesday. 
Cool stuff. Yes, indeed. We'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down your IT news of the week. Uh, Until that time, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day.